Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. The British High Court has recently ruled that WikiLeaks' Julian Assange can be extradited to the United States, saying it trusts the U.S. government's assurances that they will reduce the risk of Assange committing suicide in the American supermax prison to which he would most likely be remanded. Keeping Assange from killing himself would most likely involve drugging him. After being cooped up for seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy, followed by more than two years in the UK's Belmarsh prison, Assange's mental and physical health are fragile. He suffered a stroke last October and has chronic lung problems. A look back at the court proceedings in the UK that resulted in this current extradition ruling raises questions about Assange's survival and the survival of investigative journalism exposing deadly government corruption around the world. But perhaps most troubling of all is the total immunity the plaintiffs fighting Assange have enjoyed as they engineer and carry out a blatantly corrupt process to bring Assange to an American prison cell. Last year, former UK diplomat and member of Assange's justice team, Craig Murray, who witnessed the extradition court proceedings, described them in shocking detail, calling them a charade, a railroad job, scripted by U.S. and U.K. government security services and carried out by U.K. District Judge Vanessa Barritzer. As Murray describes it, the railroad job involved flagrantly absurd, if not illegal, decisions and abuse of procedure. Legacy, or mainstream press, has ignored these details, but listen carefully to what Murray has to say. What he's describing is the paving of the way for a fundamental dismantling of an important piece of the world's social fabric by the colluding security slash intelligence services of the United States and the United Kingdom. He began the interview by talking about who was and wasn't cherry picked to witness and report on the court proceedings. There was a process by which organizations and journalists could present their credentials and get access. Um, and quite a few of them did so and appeared to do so successfully. Um, but on the morning that the hearing started, um, 42, I, I think it was, of those organizations had their credentials removed by the judge. Um, and that included uh, Amnesty International, it included Reporters Without Borders, it included quite a few of those, uh, you know, really quite. Uh, prestigious organizations, PEN, the, the uh, oh, yeah, Organization for Writers Against Censorship. Um, uh, and the, uh, the judge actually explained, gave a ruling, explained to the court that these, uh, the access had been removed in the interests of justice, they said. How this was in the interests of justice was never explained, but that was really quite... Um, quite did she elaborate on that or did she just say in the interest of justice? No, she said, she said in the interest of justice, she decided justice would be better served if they didn't have access. Um, though why, uh, she did not um, explain. Um, uh, as for journalists, um, I think mainstream media journalists were able to get video access reasonably freely, um, and yet they quite simply chose not to use it. Uh, and it isn't that the Washington Post or the New York Times weren't given video access. They would have had uh, video access. Um, 
That's but, shocking. Uh, but they just they just didn't cover the trial, in effect. What is going on with that judge, Vanessa Barritzer? What is going on with her? I mean, is she actually, is everything she's doing, is uh, the way she's running, she ran that hearing, uh, was that legal? Was um, all that legal? My strong impression was um, that she wasn't really in charge of the trial. I mean, one thing which was noted by many observers was that every time a ruling had to be made, uh, she would come into the court with the ruling ready written. Um, in what it, previously, when hearings have been at Woolwich Crown Court, at Belmarsh, and at Westminster Crown Court, she's come in with them written on paper. At the Old Bailey, at the four-week hearing, she, she was coming in and reading the judgments off a laptop. But in both cases, the, the interesting thing is that whatever the point was that was being judged, she was bringing in rulings that had been written before she heard the arguments. Now, she, she knows what's, what's going to be argued in, in that both sides have to put in a written argument explaining why they're asking for. So when, for example, the uh, defense um, asked for an adjournment in order to uh, give them time to prepare a defense against the uh, second superseding indictment, all the new charges that were built just right. before the hearing, they, the defense requested an adjournment. And they had to put in written arguments explaining why they ha had an adjournment. But then uh the uh, and, and the prosecution put in arguments explaining why they don't think an adjournment should be given but then there's a process in court where the two argue and where um uh, where you know the defense explained for hours and at length why it was necessary to have an adjournment going far beyond what they'd put in their in their written brief and that process of briefing the judge and, and then the prosecution replied and then there's dialogue between the two all that was ignored and it, it's possible, you know, the judgment is, was prepared on the basis of the written arguments previously submitted, but just ignored, was brought into court before the oral arguments had even been made, before anyone even said anything. So plainly, she wasn't actually listening well, <laughs> to, to these barristers. The, the British courts have something called abuse of procedure. I mean, isn't that a procedure that wasn't followed? <sighs> the difficulty is that and the the legal precept of, of British courts is that the judge is master in their own court. Um, and that's that's taken as a uh, as a legal maxim to say that it's, you know then essentially a judge can do pretty well, well what they like in their court. Um, so it's um, uh, wait a it's second. Hard to say. I, mean, I, I asked the um, I asked, in fact, um, Gareth Pierce, the very famous lawyer who leads Julian's legal team. I asked her whether it was normal for a judge to, bring, to write their judgment before they actually hear the arguments. Um, and she said that she, she, uh, she you know, there have been occasions in her career where she's pretty sure it's happened. But normally, they at least make some effort to disguise the fact. As well, to. yeah, but you know what I don't understand? I don't understand the, that the judge 
is not beholden to the to the rule of law to legal process i mean yeah within that whatever you want to be master of go ahead but if you're not following the law if you're not following a legal process proper legal process in a judicial setting uh, do, you, do you understand i mean i get the master I, I, I bit it's difficult to um it's difficult to prove for one thing uh, i mean i i sat there and i i witnessed from my vantage point in the public gallery i could look look down and on on the, on the judge's desk um because the public gallery is on a kind of mezzanine level and um i i definitely witnessed for sure she didn't alter one word of those judgments as a result of the oral argument she was hearing um, and, and what I was going to go on to say is my personal view, which I can't prove, is I very much doubt she's the person who wrote those judgments that she brought into into court. I think she was being being given those, but by you know government or security service influenced sources. Uh, she was being told what rulings to make. No, they're not going to get an adjournment. You know, we're not going to have more time to consider the new indictment. Here's your ruling. Uh, I don't think she was looking at the written arguments and then writing her ruling, then coming and pretending to hear the, the oral argument. I think she was being given those judgments to read out. You know, it, but, but the whole process is being, is a charade. The whole thing is, is theatre. Uh, there was no genuine legal process happening in front of our eyes at all. It, it was all a pretense at a hearing in which all the judgments on procedural points as we went along, uh, all of which, all the major judgments are, are always on you know witnesses and who could be heard and that kind of thing, all, always went against the defence. Um, those judgments were made outside that courtroom and, and I've got no doubt that the the final verdict, uh, you know, was was decided before the case started. Uh, oh, my, I, I had no impression that we were witnessing anything other than, than a charade throughout the entire. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think I, I think that's pretty clear. I guess I guess if I were thinking like a member of Julian's uh, justice team, I'd be thinking what what of this charade can I use in the appeal process yeah. to show that it was um, a miscarriage of justice. And I think there's a, there's a huge amount there that, that, um, that, that can be appealed, um, including that, you know, that refusal to allow an adjournment to give time to respond to the new superseding indictment fee. Um, the new superseding indictment was received, um, I think, about five weeks before the hearing started, containing entirely new charges, entirely new, about hacking into banks in Iceland um, and <laughs> various other matters, which were completely new to the defence, which they'd never heard before. Um, and, they, and they only had five weeks, to, in which time... They didn't have time to gather the evidence and the witnesses, particularly because during that five weeks, Julian was being held in 
Belmarsh jail with almost no access to his lawyers. So how is he meant in that time to prepare a defence to right. these two charges? So I think I mean that's just you know one of the many points uh, on which um, uh, an appeal can be on which an appeal can be can, can be made. Um, the the legal team are uh, you know I think. Nobody is very hopeful of the decision at this stage of the process because the whole thing seemed like a fit up. And, and, and I should say, you know, I'm talking about very experienced, highly, highly regarded senior lawyers who were shocked by the process they were they were going through and, and who, who weren't used to dealing with this kind of level of um, injustice uh, and judicial railroading. So. That, that they are fairly confident that once they get to a more senior court, uh, that they that, that they would win, that, that they would win on appeal. You don't um, think that there's going to be very heavy pressure from the state apparatus on those senior courts to just ignore? It's the state has. I, and there's a genuine point here, I think, that the state has very limited ability to put pressure on senior courts because, you know, those judges, Judge Berates, uh, you know, is a relatively junior judge who wants to be in a senior court. And uh, it's the politicians who have a power who decides to get to be a judge in a, in a senior court, um, which is done by, it's called the Lord Chancellor's Office, but, but you know, through the Ministry of Justice. Um, uh, once you get to the the High Court or the Supreme Court, uh, you're effectively at the pinnacle of your profession, and you can't be removed. And, and I think you you do have, you know, people discover an amount of independence when they become that senior because there's nothing they want anymore. Uh, and right. Uh, so I and think, they're not beholden politically to whoever appointed them or. But, but uh, by yeah. large, no. Um, okay. Okay. It's not a, it's not That's a, helpful. It isn't a, unlike the United States, it's not a party political thing really. Who gets um, who, who, who gets appointed? Um, partly because we don't have the social divisions, and, and there is no um, significant section of British public opinion which is against abortion, for example. You know, we, we just don't have those. Um, those sharp cultural divides that people fall one side or the other of. So, so, right. so, so it's not really akin to the sort of... Um, uh, well, I think that's American that's system. a very hopeful thing. That's a very hopeful thing. I was, I was really uh, so interested in hearing uh, from you directly about the um, arguments that the lawyers were making um, about the First Amendment not protecting journalists. Yeah, no, this not was absolutely fascinating. And and what was really interesting was after the first week of the hearing, um, there was a, a major change in the position of the United States government and the position of prosecution were taking. They started off, by arguing that Julian Assange is not a journalist and that therefore he doesn't get First Amendment 
protection. And they tried to say he's not a journalist because they tried to say he was involved in hacking and he was involved in collusion with Chelsea Manning to obtain the material. We then had a, a week of very compelling testimony from senior journalists and senior professors of journalism and others who argued that what Julian did in collaborating with Chelsea Manning, for example, was no different at all to what the Washington Post did in in collaborating with Deep Throat over Watergate or whatever. You're a journalist. You cultivate sources. That's what journalists do. Uh, And the the argument that Julian Assange's behavior was not journalistic behavior, it, it, it wasn't running. You, you know, they, it they, wasn't sticking. They they threw that spaghetti on the wall and it didn't stick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so they, the case was going really rather badly for, in in the first week for the United States government. Um, then uh, suddenly they they called they called a timeout. Well, what happened was they um, they decided that the husband of the junior lawyer representing the United States government might have COVID. So so there was a two-day break in the trial while uh, her husband and she went off to be tested and everything was reset. And then they came back with a completely new tactic. Um, And after they returned, they argued completely differently. They argued completely differently. Um, They argued that um, any journalist is subject to the Espionage Act if they publish classified material. And in fact, mere possession of classified material, whether they publish it or not, makes any journalist subject to the Espionage Act. And they they argued specifically, and they, they, they said exactly this, you know, in terms. They said um, that the famous um, Pentagon Papers, New York Times case, um, did not say there could not be a publication, there could not be a prosecution under the Espionage Act. It was only about prior restraint. And they said that in their their dicta, um, a number of the Supreme Court judges in the New York Times Pentagon Papers case, stated specifically that there could still be a prosecution under the Espionage Act. Um, so, you know, this was a huge claim to make that any yeah. journalist, any journalist who possesses any classified information, uh, even even a journalist who's not American, right? Even a, any journalist anywhere in the world, yeah, any journalist anywhere in the world. Um, uh, is subject to prosecution under the Espionage Act, and that you know, espionage is not covered by the First Amendment. Um, now, that if the if the New York Times and the Washington Post and their like were actually paying any attention, you know that would that would send immediate red flags up for them. You know, the, every journalist in the world ought to ought to be absolutely horrified by this argument, but for some reason. It's just not covered. It's quite extraordinary. But but that is now the argument that the U.S. government is relying on in this case. But but possession of classified material by a journalist is an offense under the Espionage Act. Full stop. You know, I find this very interesting because 
this not only affects all journalists around the world, but it affects all citizens around the world because if you look at it as, yes, it's reporting and it's publishing um, you know, secret government secrets, but if those government secrets are crimes also, okay, that means the government arrogates to itself total right to classify all of its crimes. One of the, I'm, I'm again, go, going back to the trial, yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. One of the most extraordinary features of the trial was that the judge ruled that there could be no mention in court of possible US government implication in torture. Uh, that no evidence could be given of that. Um, so we had um, uh, Mohammed El Mazri, you know, who was yes. uh, subject to extraordinary rendition, taken to uh, Afghanistan, uh, tortured for six months, whatever. Um, his evidence must not include any mention of torture because she said she was not in a position to judge whether or not torture had taken place. That wasn't the issue before her, so nobody must allege it, she said. And so, you know, we were going through, um, uh, being taken through WikiLeaks material, being taken through uh, evidences of witnesses who were saying, basically putting the public interest case, saying, you know, explaining what WikiLeaks had revealed and why it was in the public interest that was revealed, but having to do that without mentioning anything to which the United States government might object, like uh, <laughs> war crimes or torture. And, and this was a, an absolutely ludicrous process because it, firstly, it meant that things were forbidden from being said, which every single person knows are true. I mean, they weren't allowed to say there was torture in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, you know, that is just. You see, to me, that's that's. I don't know. That is that going to be part of the appeal? Yeah, yeah I think that, that that will be part of the, the appeal going forward. And and also um, on many of these issues, as in the El Masri case, for example, the European Court of Human Rights, um, which is you know the highest court, which is above the UK Supreme Court. Um, uh, has already ruled and had already ruled on the facts of the Massey case. So the, this very junior court was refusing to accept facts which had been established by courts far, far higher than it. So it made no sense in a legal sense and certainly in a political sense and in terms of common sense. People were not permitted to say things that everybody knows well, are true. not only that, not only that, but the United States itself, I would say, de facto admitted that uh, WikiLeaks released, uh, released evidence of crimes because they actually acted on that information to, to make certain corrections, right? Yep. Like with the drone, with the, the, with the drone program killing people, they backed off, they backed off. Is that useful? Yeah, no, those, I mean, those points were were made by, by the defense and were made so strongly that, that WikiLeaks, because one of the um, uh, one of the key points at issue, of course, 
um, is that the US-UK extradition treaty under which this extradition is taken place, or is taking place, um, states that specifically there can be no extradition for political offences. Uh, and of course, the defense is arguing that the, the motivation behind the publication was political. Therefore, no extradition can take place full stop because it's excluded by the treaty. Um, and one of the, uh, and the, um, uh, the prosecution has two arguments. The first argument, which is astonishing to anyone who is not a lawyer, is that that aspect of the treaty is not valid because it was not incorporated into British law. There's no UK legislation that says that you can't be extradited for a political offence, even though the treaty says you shouldn't be. Uh, and that's a that's a strange argument because um, uh, the uh, obviously the legislation is permissive and permissive of what happens in the treaty. Uh, it doesn't stop the treaty excluding certain things. It doesn't mean you have to extradite <laughs> on any grounds what, whatsoever. Uh, and the, the idea that you're extraditing under a treaty but ignoring some of its clauses, you know, is. That's extraordinary. It's a bit crazy. But the other argument the, the prosecution make is that um, uh, the, the publication was not politically motivated. And, and here their argument is they, they say that in international law, the term political can only mean, can only have the narrow meaning of supporting a political party and anything that's not uh, done in terms of supporting one party or the other party um, is not political. So, uh, the you know, giving the public information in order to try to change policy is not a political act. It's only a political act if you were doing it to support one political party or the other political party. That's the case of the United States government. And, and again, um, you know, these are should should the judge rule for extradition on any of these points? These are all appealable points. And and some of them are, to a layman, quite crazy. Uh, but the, you know, lawyers are lawyers. Uh, and so they go through and say that, you know, in past occasions where there have been international judgments as to what constitutes a physical offence or not, uh, it's always been to do with somebody supporting one party or another party. There's no precedent for meaning anything else, blah, blah, no, you know, and then, then produce 80 cases. Well, there's something very interesting about that statement, though, because what it says is, well, you have the political parties and then you have the state and the state answers to no one. No. You know, which is uh, that's that is essentially I feel like the entire thrust of their present of all their, you know, if you add all these details together that we've been discussing, they're saying, you know, the state is not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's it's its own entity and it has the right to do this. And so what it what that does, if you think about it, 
is it completely negates the the avenues of power that are that that give the state the avenues that give the state its power i.e the people the constitution the two political parties that fight it out so that you know their ideas can do you understand so am i making myself clear it seems to me like they're just basically saying the state is the super entity and um doesn't matter what the part that you know politics is between this party and that party and we have nothing to do with it when actually they do yeah and i think that's i mean one thing that's been very plain i think right is that it's the security services that are driving this yes anyway. on both sides yeah on, on, on both sides yeah and yeah. the um uh, uh and that the uh the, the trump presidency was was a break from the norm in the sense that he wasn't as much of an establishment inside or as much of a, a partisan right. and he's very much part still of the uh you know of the ultra wealthy who control everything but he wasn't part of the political party aspect of that uh so it wasn't the background he came from um and it was fairly plain to me that the White House never had any control whatsoever of the security services during Trump, Trump's tenure. The security services were doing essentially what they what they wanted, which to a large extent he found he had to go along with. I think um, they've been do well. They've been in charge of a lot for a long time. I mean, that's why, and they, their part, their power has been accruing, and now it's. Uh, and I think, but and I think what happened with Trump was having somebody from outside the normal political elite come into power made that more obvious than it normally is when it's the Clintons or dare I say it the Bidens or whatever right who are, yeah who go ahead working, and dare because you, I think you're right yeah we've been working within the system for a long while who are uh, and we're now going to go back but I I don't think on um, on on WikiLeaks we're going to see a, I'm not I'm not anticipating a change in policy coming from the United States um you also said something very, very interesting, which is at one point they tried to float a deal with Julian that they that uh, if he would tell them who the DNC uh, leaker was or hack leaker hacker, you know, uh, did did you not write about that? I, I remember. Yeah, you, no, but there what, was uh, a congressman came along. Who, and the trouble of this is it has deniability. There's no, nobody denies that the congressman, whose name I forget, Dana Rohrbach or something like that, um, uh, came and saw Julian in person saying he was acting on behalf of Trump and that if Julian would out the source for the um, uh, DNC leak, um, then there could be a pardon, and you know, and, and Julian's uh, problems would be ameliorated. Um, because obviously, it was very much in Trump's political interest to get rid of the whole RussiaGate thing, which was always phony anyway. Um, but Julian wasn't prepared to to out the source, you know, in, in any circumstances. So, so that that came to nothing. Um, the the 
the line from the Trump camp is that Trump never actually approved that approach. And as I say, it had, it had, if you like, you know, plausible deniability. And we can't prove that that, that was directly from Trump. But it, it seems very probable that it was it was indeed from Trump. Well, it's interesting because you know Benny, uh, Benny was sent, uh, was asked to talk to the Trump administration about the findings of the Vips people. And they said all that was very interesting. And he thought that they were going to follow up on it. And uh, they did not. And it just, um, I mean, you have, obviously, you have some, uh, <laughs> you have some information because uh, you received, did you, re you received the thumb drive? Is that correct? Yeah. The very strange answer to that is I don't know if I did or not. <laughs> oh, you what? <laughs> you were given a thumb drive. I was given a something. Uh huh. You were given a something which you delivered. Yep. To uh, who'd but, you who'd you deliver it to? Nah, uh, no. No. Just tell me what you can tell me. Yeah, I, I've more or less told you what I can tell you. I, I, I was given something and I delivered it. Exactly what it was, I genuinely don't know, which is one reason why um, I'm um, I'm quiet on it. I was delivering things in, in both do you re Do you regret not looking? No, not at all. Not, 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 no, I'm, uh, I, I'm very... Um, uh, <laughs> I, I think, I'm, having been formerly in the diplomatic service, Yes. Which is rather a different place to operate. Um, I got used to doing things on a need-to-know basis, if you see what I mean. But, I, you, I Sure, sure. You, know, you need to that. know your little bit. And, right. and there are very good reasons to organize this so that not too many people know the whole picture. So, so I, I, I'm just being a postman, basically. So that's interesting because, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, why doesn't Craig Murray, you know, why doesn't he get in touch with people in the Bush, in the uh, Trump administration? Why doesn't he contact uh, the press and tell them, you know, what he knows? And it's because you don't know. <laughs> it's because you don't know anything. Uh, I mean, you are in an interesting position. Let's put it that way. I'm not. I know a certain amount of stuff I've been told, if you see what I mean, but, yes. but what I directly witnessed myself was quite limited. Uh, so, uh, but I did, I did offer to tell as much as I know. I, 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 I wrote to Mr. Muller saying, I hear you're investigating these matters. I'm very happy to tell you what I know, um, but I never received any, any response from him. So what would you have told him? Uh, what I've just told you, in effect, so, or oh. maybe slightly more than that. But um, yeah. well, what else? Why are you keeping <laughs> it from me? No, I, I, I think some things, you know. Uh, All right. Let me ask you some questions. Yeah. Just are are Benny is the Vips report? Uh, does it track with what you know? Yeah, I, and I think Bill Binney's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, from and you know anyone who who argues with Bill on on what is and what isn't technically feasible and what the technical data shows is 
is crazy. And I, I think the only thing you ever you really need to know to understand what happened here is the fact that the FBI never ever bothered uh, to look at the DNC servers. Uh, you know, if, if they were serious about finding the truth, <laughs> then they would have actually investigated the services themselves, not taken the word of CrowdStrike, who were always party P, and who subsequently, years later, uh, you know, admitted that actually they really didn't have any evidence at all and, and in effect, made it up. So um, uh, the, uh, you know, there's never, the fact Muller didn't want to talk to me. I mean, there, there's never been any genuine attempt to discover the truth by the... Uh, uh, well, by the, the, the thing is, is you've got somebody like um, Ed Batasky, you know, who spent a fortune and as well as his good health to uh, fight what has been an aggressive, well-funded uh, offense against him to shut him up and make him go away. You know, and it's so strange because you also have you you have all these bits and pieces. You have your experience and what you have just said. You you have um, who was that Fox analyst who had visited Julian? I forget her name now for some reason. Who was the one who was a friend of Ed Batowski's and told Ed, you know, I spoke to him and he said that uh, the rich boys were involved in this. And, you know, she sort of disappeared. And, uh, and Julian himself saying, you know, it wasn't a state actor who gave this to me and so on. I mean, these are the things I think that uh, are really troubling in the sense that you've got this extradition hearing. You've got this whole thing going on over here with Ed Batowski and Vips. Vips too, you know, they were subpoenaed for everything they knew in, in all of this in, in a, as I say, an offensive to sort of destroy any information about where that stuff came from, which all goes back to how powerful, how powerful WikiLeaks and Julian are, you know, what a powerful um, threat he is. And I just want you to talk a little bit about what you saw in terms of, I mean, do you think they're just trying to kill him slowly without some overt thing because, um, and dragging all of these legal, this legal process dragging out. Do you, are they trying to kill him? Um, I think it would, let me put it this way. I, I think it would be a very good result for them if he died. Um, one of the most shocking things that came out uh, and was stated quite openly in testimony by a, a psychologist working or psychiatrist working for the British government from within the, the prison psychiatry system was that they said that um, in reply to the defense who were talking about Julian's deteriorating mental condition, uh, he stated that the um, 
The reason that Julian had been confined to the, to the medical wing was not because they accepted his health condition was deteriorating, but because that was the way they could keep him in solitary confinement, which is otherwise illegal in the UK. Um, and and the, the psychiatrist said this because it was his job to say this, that Julian's perfectly healthy and can be extradited. So the defence is saying, well, if he's healthy, why is he confined in the, uh, in, in, in the, in the health wing? And you pardon, it's nothing to do with his health. It's because that was the only way to keep him in solitary confinement. Um, and that, that was absolutely astonishing. Uh, and the, the truth of that is, is borne out by, um, by the fact, for example, that the, uh, the regular uh, health reports, which have to be written by the doctor in charge of a medical ward on anyone who is being kept in isolation in, 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 in the mental health unit, um, those reports were never written, for example. So um, it, it, it appears true. Uh, and, the, and in fact, he, he, he gave the reason. He said that when Julian first went into Belmarsh Jail, um, a prisoner took a video, a brief snatch of video of Julian standing by a pool table. Uh, and of course, prisoners aren't meant to have mobile phones, let alone take videos. And some, somehow this video got to the outside world. And that was extremely embarrassing for the jail. And that was why Julian had been put in solitary confinement. Um, but what is, uh, and again, uh, you know, it, it is just absolutely astonishing that that should be said in in, in court by Dr. Blackwood, the uh, the, uh, the prison psychiatrist who, who gave this information. Um, but what what's undoubtedly true was as a result of keeping him in solitary confinement, uh, Julian underwent a very severe mental health and mental and physical health deterioration during his period in, in, in solitary confinement, which was for several months. Um, and I, th I think there was, you know, every reason to be very, very concerned at that stage because after confinement in the Ecuadorian embassy in a very small space, um, his health was already not, not good. Uh, back, um, a year or so ago, a little more, you know, there was reason to be concerned that he might not survive the experience of being jailed, particularly, you know, if they if they kept him in in solitary. Um, I think his and the fact, you know, they refused to consider releasing him while COVID was running through the prison system, uh, and and Julian has a. You know, a a genuine chronic history of, of having a weak chest and, and having coughs and, and lung problems. Um, I think it would be a very good result for them if he were to die in prison. And I, th I certainly think they've done nothing to, to avert that. They were extremely aware of the deterioration of his medical condition when they were keeping him in solitary, but they nonetheless kept him in, in solitary. I, I, I think they would have been very happy for him to die at that stage. What we heard in court about the conditions in American supermax prisons were um, uh, it was just mind-boggling. It was astonishing. To, it, was, it was almost hard to take it in and believe that people can do that to people. Um, and I, I certainly think that if you ever got to the United States, um, it is improbable he would survive that regime. Uh, that, that, I'll tell you what really 
the hair on the back of my neck went up when you, I read where you had reported that Blackwood, this Dr. Blackwood had said uh, that they would medicate him enough so that he would not commit suicide. Yeah, that's right. And the, the fact you're held, you're held for 23 hours a day in a cell that's nine feet by six feet. And, and you know, if you consider what nine feet by six feet is, you know, that's a tiny, tiny area. And that, that becomes your world. You, you're held there for the rest of your life, in effect. And the, for me, the, um, uh, sometimes it's for banal things at being out of the cruelty. And for me, it was Warden Beard, the former prison warden, uh, who'd been uh, in charge of the um, uh, prison which, which replicates supermax conditions in, in New York. Um, where she said that the prisoners were held in a cell that's nine feet by six feet for 23 hours a day. For one hour a day, they're allowed out. And in that period, they're put into another cell, identical, which is also nine feet by six feet. And that's called the recreation cell. And that's their how, one How hour. can they be out that's, if that's, they're in another box? That, that's what their one hour a day is in another identical box. That's their What's one the difference? Day. There's no difference? There is no difference. She, she said, it's exactly the same. It's an identical unit. That's Orwellian. Um, it is. She said she tried herself to slightly improve matters by putting an exercise bo bike in, in the other cell. So you're in an identical box, but you have an exercise bike for one hour a day. Uh, but that... That to me was absolutely astonishing. But you have a recreation cell, which is just identical to the one you're locked in, exact same size, and that's your one hour a day out. Uh, and that's just absolutely astonishing. Um, and of course, anybody would, and you're not allowed to, you have no human communication at all. You're not allowed to talk to anyone. Um, so, of course, people would, would, would go. Mad. Absolutely mad. You're bound to go mad. Yeah, in, of course. It's, it's not, not a, survivable situation. I, I just want to go back to um, the court, the, 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 um, the trial that's going on in Spain mm. um, and its significance to this one, to, to Julian's extradition or not, and to, um, and, and, and to whether or not the courts will hear it in the United States. Because um, we'll just talk about that because, you know, Dan, Dan Ellsberg's experience um, is very interesting and instructive because, you know, they engaged the reason why he got off the hook was indeed because the government was engaging in this illegal behavior against him at that time. Yeah, no, in Dan's case, they, they burgled his psychiatrist, I know, and, and did various other um, uh, acts against him. I mean, Julian's case, they have, um, we know from this case in Spain of the Spanish company that was subcontracted to do it, you know, the CIA was spying on his meetings with his legal team, preparing his defense. That, and again, I mean, it's not just the Ellsberg case, that <laughs> in any genuine court, that fact alone would have the case thrown That's out. That's it, yep. <laughs> 
prosecution has been spying on the defense's meetings with its legal counsel. Any genuine judge would immediately throw the case out. That should be in itself already enough to dismiss the case. And it's astonishing. Um, um, also, something that's not been very much um, uh, uh, publicized is what the defense of the American government to this is. I thought the American government, what I expected the American government to do is to deny the link with the Sp Spanish company and say it, it was done through this guy, Adelson, who owns half of Las Vegas, apparently. Um, Sam, yep. uh, my expectation was that the defense by the American government would be to say this is Adelson operating on his own. He's not. He's doing it himself, or he's doing it for Trump. He's not connected to the CIA. I thought they would deny any official involvement, but in fact, that's not what they said at all. They've they've they, they've admitted the CIA link and that the CIA was getting this material. And what they're claiming is that Chinese walls, and that's the term they used, Chinese walls within the US government mean that the CIA did not give the material to anyone else. So they didn't give it to the Justice Department or um, uh, um, which is simply unbelievable. You know, in which case, what is the purpose of the CIA of collecting this material and not sharing it with anybody? That, that would make no sense whatsoever. But the, 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 the the, the American government is admitting it's spied on Julian Assange. Um, what it, and it admits it's spied on his meetings with its legal team. Its defense is that it didn't pass on that, that it was this bit of the American government, not that bit of the American government, and we didn't pass on the information for prosecution, which uh, is frankly completely unbelievable. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, no, it's absurd. It's absurd, and I'm interested in knowing why that is not admissible, that wasn't admissible as a part of the extradition hearing, because if, if there can be no trial, then why, why the extradition? Yeah, well, I mean, the, um, the evidence was, was heard, um, and, what, and was uncontested by the American government, but what what the um, what the U.S. government? So it has been a well. I should say on the question of what's ruled admissible, the judge heard all evidence on the basis other than she ruled evidence on torture is inadmissible, but she didn't rule anything as admissible on the case of everything she heard. She ruled that some of it may be inadmissible, but she'll hear it all. And when she makes her judgment, she will at that point decide what was admissible and what was inadmissible. So some stuff we heard, like about the um, uh, the Spanish case and the CIA spying on Assange's meetings with his legal team, she has heard it. She hasn't yet ruled on whether it's admissible or not. Uh, and that will come in her final judgment, where she'll say, I have decided this. I've considered this argument, this argument, this argument. Um, these arguments I didn't consider because I decided the material was in, inadmissible. And I think that may be one of the ways she finds to justify her, um, her decision to extradite, that an awful lot of the most damning material, she will simply say, oh, it wasn't admissible. I couldn't take that into account. Well, and since she's channeling, 
clearly, it seems like she's channeling the uh, intelligence services. I think she's going to come up with some kind of argument, um, you know, some kind of argument to justify not allowing that, yeah. that, uh, you know. To, to come back to your last point, I should have finished by saying, no, I think the, I think for all the reasons we've been discussing, I think the extradition would probably be knocked out by a high court in the UK and not, not happen. I think a higher court would probably block the extradition. If that does not happen and he is extradited, then I think, again, for the reasons we've been discussing, I don't think this would go all the way through the courts uh, and it might get a, a district court in East Virginia to, to agree to convict, but I don't think it's going to survive appeals to the higher courts in the United States either. But the trouble is all this could take years. And as you say, the, the aim is to, you know, obviously the longer Julian's kept in confinement and kept away from being able to be politically active, the better for them. And if they can kill him with prison conditions in the meantime, that, that's even better for them as well. And you could be talking, by the time we get an appeal done in the UK, you could be talking another three years of serious confinement. Uh, Do you think he can happens. take that? I think, it'll think... Be I think it'll be extremely hard. I really do think it'll be extremely hard. I should say, um, since he's been let out of solitary confinement in the UK and, and been able to mix with the general prison population, um, things uh, he doesn't look as terrible now as he looked uh, you know, a few months ago. He, he, he does seem to be, um, um, you know, to give less immediate concern for acute danger of death, let, let, let me put it yeah, that way. Yeah. You know, he, he, he does seem to be a little better, but uh, it's also a question of what, you know, what, what does survive it mean? He may physically survive it, whether he'd be the same person after he came out again is a different... He can't be. He can't, he can't even be the same person right now, you know? I mean, how... Uh, so, I mean, we're coming to the close of the show, and I, I just wanted to to ask you, I mean, you're devoting yourself entirely to um, this team, to Julian's uh, situation. And I, I just wanna ask you as a former diplomat, as a, 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 you know, what do you see? What do you see from all this? What are the things that really, strike you? I worry for kind of loss of hope in a sense. I, I think 10 years ago, WikiLeaks gave us all huge hope that the internet was going to bring about a new era of freedom of public information where democracy would become meaningful because people would actually know what governments were doing behind the cloak of of secrecy, and where also um, people's ability to interact with each other and to learn news directly without going through the mainstream media. You know, this was all going to have a transformational effect on, on society. The, um, there's been a huge pushback against that. We, we, you've got the persecution of WikiLeaks, the persecution of Julian, um, and you've got the way the internet is developed so that traffic is 
massively regulated by you know corporate gatekeepers, uh, Facebook and Twitter. Social media censored now and oh, openly, yeah. just. Yeah, yeah. They, um, so I view what's happening to Julian as partly, you know, a case of a terrible, terrible injustice happening to a friend of mine on a personal level, but also part of this wider pushback, pushback against freedom in society, uh, which 10 years ago seemed to be getting better and now seems to be getting much, much worse. And I think there's a, uh, there's a duty on those of us who see that to try to push back against it, which I, I assume is why you do what, 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 what you are doing as well. That's... Well, I mean, I say, I have said it, you know, many times, where Julian goes, we will all go eventually. And you mm -hmm. can see it unfolding right now. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, please give my very best to Julian and his family. I will do. And keep going. <laughs> we, we have to. <laughs> <laughs>